continuing our aim to understand the present through the past. The same time as the Soviet Union was finally withdrawing from Afghanistan. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history. So he's going from a think tank into a government, into, into the Bush administration. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge. So liberal democracy, kind of American freedom, had triumphed. There is no longer a clear division between what is foreign and what is domestic. We do have an overarching topic for this series of Barely Getting By, and that is the 1990s. Hi, and welcome back to episode one, part three of Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. This is the final instalment in this episode. We finished our last segment by introducing Chloe's second favourite historian, I think. Yes, my second favourite historian. That's right, Eric Hobsbawm. And what we want to do today is present, I guess, Hobsbawm's alternative view to that of Francis Fukuyama, who we introduced in the first part, of course, who, um, I guess, contended that history was ending in 1989. And and Hobsbawm has quite, I guess, quite a different view. And another reason we want to discuss him today, Chloe, is because he also kind of provides the inspiration for the title of this season. That's right. So we're going to be, we've called the series The Long 1990s. And first of all, I'd say that we don't, we don't own that. It's not original. Um, It's especially not original because I have seen references to the long 1990s in several places on Twitter. However, unfortunately, Twitter doesn't have any sort of citation engine, which I think is something that's really lacking because I'd love to be able to credit or find whoever first came up with the idea of the long 1990s. Um, Eric Hobsbawm is best known for his trilogy about the 19th century, which taken together amounts to what he calls the long 19th century. And what that means is that he's saying that the 19th century can't be confined to the years 1800 to 1900. It actually extends from the French Revolution in 1789 to the beginning of the First World War in 1914. So, if the First World War kicks off the 20th, ends of the 19th century, it also kicks off the 20th. So by contrast with the long 19th century, he talks about a short 20th century, which runs from the First World War until 1989 and the beginnings of the collapse of communism in Europe. So I guess this kind of brings us to what historians like to call periodization, which is really just our handy way of asking how we get from point A to point B in any historical period or in any series of historical events. And it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not arbitrary. It's a way, you know, people will make decisions about periodization based on events or economic structures or political movements. And in this case, if we're talking about Hobsbawm's short 20th century, then he's really talking about the period of time that is, that runs alongside the birth, the life, and the death of of Soviet communism. Okay, so I, I guess kind of at its most basic level, it's saying that events don't kind of start and end conveniently with the starts and ends of, of centuries or decades. No, they don't. No, they don't. Which which goes to why we why we are sort of um, hypothesizing with this podcast that we are perhaps still living at the tail end of the 1990s in the year 2020. That's exactly right. And also, I guess, to to link it to current events and our current situation, what even is time? Yeah, look, I I have no sense of time right now. 
I, I, you know, really, I'm just moving with the sun, aren't I? I think I think the sun, the sun, yeah, the sun and the rhythms of my dogs, you know, demanding schedule of walks and feeding. That's right, and and for me, it's two small children who are on different schedules conveniently. But anyway, to get to get back to the point of of this part of our discussion, Chloe, what what did Hobsbawm say about the 20th century? Well, I think. And, you know, it's been, it's been quite lovely to spend a bit of time with Hobsbawm, um, in contrast to spending a lot of time with Francis Fukuyama last, <laughs> before our, our first episode in this series. Um, Hobsbawm is a really good reminder that the 20th century was exceptionally and extremely violent. And the reason I really picked up on that when I was rereading Hobsbawm this past week or so is that... One of the things I keep seeing in a lot of commentary around coronavirus, and I've been seeing, you know, a lot of times this real yearning for what I saw termed in a New York Times article the other day as throwback democracy. So democracy that is led by expertise and rationality and consensus between governments. And it sort of harkens back to this idea that there was a golden age of democracy. What Hobsbawm is a really good reminder of is one that that didn't really exist. And two, that the relative peacefulness of democracy in the West, in the in a certain part of the 20th century, was really hard won. And it was won at the cost of those millions of lives that we spoke about briefly in our last episode when we were talking about the Second World War and particularly the casualties in the Soviet Union during the Second World War. All right. So, so it sounds to me what you're saying is that unlike um, our friend Fukuyama, Hobsbawm is not engaging in the kind of triumphalism about the 20th century that that we've recognised some other historians as doing. No, no, not at all. He, One of the things I found really interesting is that he talks about the loss of a sense of history in the 90s. And there's some way, in, in a sense, that that is quite similar to what Fukuyama was saying. He also, similarly to Fukuyama, he worries about what he calls a social individualism. So that being one of the run-on effects of this triumph of liberal capitalism and as he puts it, neoliberalism in the 1990s. Is that, that's kind of like Fukuyama's loss of ideology? Yeah, yeah, loss of the loss of ideology and also the loss of culture. That's something he, that's something Hobsbawm really worries about. But he doesn't see much reason for confidence or triumphalism in, in the 1990s. And that's not, that's not just because he was a lifelong communist. <laughs> so it's, it's not just because, sour grapes. No, it's not just sour grapes. It's because he sees the 1990s unfolding, and this is this is a book that was published in 1994, as a period of insecurity and uncertainty about what comes next. He's He was probably wrong when he said that he basically says that, you know, neoliberalism is a blip and pro-market ideology will, will fade away fast. Um, but by the same token, he also identifies that for for the centre-left and the centre-right, so, you know, the advocates of a mixed economy that had great success in the mid-20th century, that they're kind of listless in the early 1990s and they don't really know where to go and they don't really have a project. So what he's saying is that there's really a vacuum in the 90s and no one can be sure what will happen next, but he also doesn't think that it's the end of history. I think he says something to the effect of that there will always be history as long as there are human beings. Which is pretty prescient yeah yeah no absolutely and there are two points on which i think he's especially clear-sighted about some of the risks of the 1990s if we don't actually find something like even if it's not a grand plan some sort of competence in in politics um 
in the coming decade and even a couple of decades. So he talks firstly about predicting a demographic crisis, which really is rooted in what a potential crisis of globalization as we see more and more of more and more production going and being outsourced to cheap labor economies in the former third world, which and he talks about how that's going to have a really strong effect on domestic economies and the you know growing inequalities, potential for social discontent, which I think is something that we've certainly had in the West over the last, well, I mean, at least since the 2008 crash, but it's been pretty, you know, relatively effectively papered over, but it's certainly something that is coming to the fore now as we're looking at, you know, a a real economic crisis because of the coronavirus. He was saying effectively that, you know, there there are seeds that were planted in the failures of the 1990s that, and Hobbesbaum died in 2012, so he couldn't have seen this, that are kind of being sowed now. Um, So that's the first point in which I think is quite farsighted. The second is he talks about ecological crisis. And it's a really good reminder reading these books from the 19 from the early 1990s that people knew and this is something you've said before on the on the podcast Emma, that people knew in the in the late 1980s and the 1990s what was happening in terms of global warming and the coming climate catastrophe. Hobbeswell knew about that. And one of the things that really struck me rereading the age of, of the age of extremes which is the title of the book probably should have mentioned that earlier is that he talks about how the you know the, the coming ecological crisis it's not going to be a crisis of the science and it's not going to be a, cr- a crisis of the technological approach to solving a crisis it's going to come back to economies and politics and again i think that's something that the, the 90s really political discourse really missed out on in the 90s because We'll get to this in a few episodes, I think, because 90 politicians in the 1990s, they didn't think that they needed politics to help stop climate change. That's right. And that's, I mean, Fukuyama said specifically that, you know, the 1990s would see the the kind of technical so- solving of pro- problems, the kind of end, the end of politics, as you say, but, uh, but Hobbeswam is obviously um, fairly opposed to that idea. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't think that politics, he doesn't think that politics is going to go away, nor does he think that politics should go away. The world will always need politics if it is going to be a just and fair and equitable and safe place. Which brings us back, I think, to to the question of democracy and the and the role of democracy in all this. You mentioned a, a throwback democracy earlier, but that's of course not what Hobbeswarm is getting at. No, not at all. He's and it really does, it really gets my goat, this idea of a throwback democracy, because it's just it is ahistorical and it doesn't account for the the complexity and the tension in democracy, and also the, the variability of democracies, how much each democracy differs and our understandings, understandings of what democracy is differ across time and also across place. But again, Hobbeswam is quite farsighted in that he's already talking about these trends, which again are bearing fruit today, where there is this huge, this weird ironic discrepancy between the fact that we have democracies that know more about the common people, as Hobbeswam calls them, and as we will continue to call them throughout this podcast, um, between what we know about the common people through, say, opinion polling and the inability to act on that. So he sees this declining role for ordinary people in democracy and 
effectively that there's kind of this opening for non-democratic actors to take an increasing role in directing the course of political life. And by that, he means private corporations, supranational authorities, for example, the EU. And I think, again, that's something that we see we see hugely, and especially in the American context, which I'm sure you can speak to, Emma, which where American politics is hugely influenced by lobbying, for instance. We have this idea of the swamp and this increasing sense of exclusion of ordinary people from political processes. Absolutely. I, I mean, the one that the one that comes immediately to mind is, for me, of course, in the US is gun control, where it's something like a, a polling average of something like 70 to 80% of American people are in favour of some form of gun control, of some, of some form of background check or ban on assault weapons. And, and yet the politics is so far removed from that as to make those kind of reforms seem almost impossible. And it, and it is that discrepancy, I think, that that Hobbes one was predicting pretty much exactly. Yeah, and I mean, but at the same time, I wouldn't call them predictions by any means. He, he and you know, he's, he's quite open about this, which again, I think is why we should have real historians commentating on history, because they tend to have a lot more humility about, you know, or a greater sense of how things will check can and will change in the future. He says, you know, five years earlier, he, um, before the, before publication of this book, he had written quite optimistically in the mid 1980s about his, his hopes for the future world order. What he really does in this book in, is that he, in Age of Extremes, is he, basically sets out an agenda for things that the 1990s should look at. And I think it is really unfortunate that communists and Marxists like Hobsbawm were sidelined. This is something we spoke about in in part one of this episode. They were sidelined and it was comfortable triumphalists like Fukuyama who politicians and public policy types listened to. And they were the ones who were able to set the agenda. And I think that that's part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in today. And and I think maybe, like with with all things that that is kind of taken to the extreme in in the United States, where the, there's this kind of failure to examine, um, I guess those those problems, those those deep seated structural problems with the system that kind of emerges out of 1989 and and the end of history, and and what we're seeing today in the US is again the extreme consequences of that. Yes, and. You know, it is interesting that I think and this is probably the one place where Hobbeswarm kind of in his agenda setting, he probably wasn't quite so spot on because he does, he sees the, he sees the USA as, I think he calls it a weak hegemon or something, something to that effect. And so he doesn't really, it's sort of the last superpower left standing, which is consistent with what Fukuyama had said. This is after the fall of the Soviet Union, but he doesn't really see the future of US power but he also does say that there's this vacuum opening up in the world order and he doubts that there are international institutions and international politics that will be up to the task of managing that and I think this is what we want to talk about in the next episode isn't it Emma where we're going to talk about how the USA filled that gap. But before we go I wanted to to introduce a little a little segment that we're going to try and do um, fairly often and that is We've been talking today about one of Chloe's uh, favorite favorite books of all time, so we thought we'd we'd just kind of cap off some of our episodes with a little uh, isolation recommendation from from Chloe. Yes, well, look, I I mean I've got a platform and I'm going to use it, and my usual channels are, are a bit sick of my book recommendation, my book and reading recommendations for isolation, but I have 
And I think because Italy's been on a lot of people's minds, a lot of people, you know, our hearts go out to Italy, which has been the real epicentre to this point of the coronavirus crisis in Europe. But I've spent a lot of time with some of my favourite Italian writers um, this past week and also some TV series. I think last in the last season of the podcast, we talked a little bit about the Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan, uh, Neapolitan novels. We did. Um, I happily discovered that season two of the TV adaptation of those books is now available for, to watch. It did mean having to resubscribe to Foxtel and the Mur- and Murdoch, which was I was not happy about, but I was willing to you know forgo my moral um, qualms and not the give them any money. TV show. Yeah, not, and not give them any money. It's a free trial. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to report that season two was fantastic, and it's a really beautiful, vivid realization of some of my favorite books. The other thing I have been doing in honor of Italy and in celebration of that wonderful country, which also this week has celebrated the 75th anniversary of its liberation from fascism in 1945, I've been listening to a lot of Mina. Do you know Mina? I do not. Mina is an excellent Italian pop singer. She she sang um, Tintorella de Luna. Oh, okay. I see. You know, from Looking for Ella Brandy. Yeah, but I've been listening to a lot of, and yeah, she's segued into like sort of white soul and disco. So I've been listening to a lot of Mina lately. And this has been Italy Week. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By and our opening episode of season two, The Long 1990s. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 